Welcome to this week's episode of Mixed Methods. Just a couple announcements before we get started. First, join us next Tuesday, November 21st, for a Q&A in the Slack group with today's guest, Indy Young. You can request an invite under the community tab at mix-methods.org. Also, check out Mixed Methods on Medium. You'll find UX research, how-tos, write-ups on the latest conferences, and more. Today's episode is sponsored by DScout, a remote research platform that is turning fieldwork on its head by allowing researchers to conduct experience sampling with real people right on their smartphones. Visit dscout.com to see how easy it is to start your own study. Here's this week's episode. Indy Young has been doing UX research since before it was a thing. With over 25 years of experience in various consulting roles, Indy is a wealth of knowledge and good stories. Not only about co-founding the well-known consultancy and UX think tank Adaptive Path, but also the conception of mental model diagrams, the method she's written two books about and is now well-known for. This is Ariel Sionflon, and you're listening to Mixed Methods. Today's episode mental models, and how it all started. I thought that we could start today just with kind of an introduction to how you got into this work, especially given that, you know, when you were kind of breaking in, it was much newer. And I think you have a really interesting path. So I would love to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, I guess the phrase breaking in really didn't apply. This was in the late 80s <laughs> and early 90s. Um, interaction design was not, it was just like barely, barely there. I think as a student um, at, in university, I did undergrad, I started my graduate training, but it was only going to be about writing operating systems or writing compilers. And I really had a much different approach because as a student, we, or a much different interest. As a student, we had Xerox stars, which are a precursor to Sun Microsystems, you know, sort of like they they actually had a, a windowed interface. They had a desktop sort of metaphor. They actually had a mouse. It had three buttons. And that mouse it had to be used on a little reflective pad. And these things, I think we had six of them, and all the computer science uh, students got to use them. <laughs> yeah, because you were studying software engineering. Yeah, yeah, I was studying software design, computer science, and and I worked in the lab, which was e- even better because that meant I got to use the the stars um, even more frequently because I was there all the time helping other people with their stuff. One of the things I, I had fun with there was the keyboard you could actually change it in software. I found a way that you could change it from a QWERTY to a Dvorak keyboard. So I would do my homework there while I was, you know, working on as a, a lab assistant or whatever, you know, you, you kind of like are the person on call for anybody who has trouble with the computers or the systems. And mm-hmm. so you kind of help them out, but that means you can do some homework. So I would write my English papers with the Dvorak keyboard, which was great fun. <laughs> Because it's meant it's meant for like speed, like in the English language. Uh-huh. So certain keys that you use a lot are right under your fingertips and all of that. So it, it it was a really fantastic machine. It was a great chance 
to become acquainted. I don't, I think the very first Mac had come out just before I graduated. And when I went to my graduation ceremony, you know, you have your little black robe on and your little hat on. And I actually put a mouse around my neck. Oh my God. <laughs> um, as like a necklace, you know? <laughs> I'm all like, this is it. This is the future. We used to sit around going, oh man, we'd go out to, I, I went to school at Cal Poly, which is near the ocean. And we'd go out to Pismo Beach and say, one day we'll be able to come to the beach and actually write our programs right here. Like we'll have some sort of like, I don't know, solar power or something to power the machines and like something to keep the sand out of them. And we'll be able to use them like here away from everything and they'll be connected. (laughs) (laughs) That's so amazing. I mean, yeah, I love that story. Just, you know, kind of these people right at the beginning of everything in a sense in this industry and, you know, kind of dreaming about what today we almost take for granted. Yeah, exactly. I I think we got the form factor wrong, (laughs) but we got everything else kind of there. Um, Yeah. So it was, it was definitely interesting to me. I was also studying AI. Um, I I did a lot of mathematics and numerical analysis because I just loved math. And that's kind of what computers were used for then. But when I got out into the industry, my first couple of jobs really didn't have, I mean, like the first one actually had a Mac in somebody's cubicle. There were like four of us per cubicle or six of us per cubicle. And somebody's cubicle actually had a Mac. So you could go in there and like actually play with fonts and see it on the screen as opposed to your own (laughs) machine, which didn't even have WYSIWYG. You'd have to like put tags to say, this is italicized. So we didn't do very much writing at Mm -hmm. all. We did more programming. The other thing that that I I, I want to mention that was super cool way back when was my very first job out of college. I show up for work the first day and I'm looking around going, there's four other women here oh, wow. who are just hired right along with me. I think they must have like hired all the women who graduated in computer science. <laughs> but it was really interesting because the guy who hired us was like super forward looking and really gave us a lot of leeway, I guess, in defining how our jobs would work in, in define. I remember like a couple of years into it, like, oh, let's do software reviews, <laughs> code reviews, like that mm-hmm. didn't exist at first. So, so this kind of thing was, it was really, it was really new. It was very exciting. It was very fun to be with uh, other people who sort of had the similar background to me in terms of being female in a, in a very male sort of scenario yeah, and being able to talk to them about like all the nasty things that always inevitably happen Mm -hmm. and how to deal with it, especially if it's somebody that you have to face all the time. So that was really, really helpful. It it set me up to be very confident and and self-assured about my work. Yeah. Second job, it was all about, um, I I kind of got hired to be the person who was in charge of figuring out what an interface would be like for a a compiler, Mm -hmm. for an an edit and debug sort of environment. And I was the only one at this enormous company that was actually building the hardware for a supercomputer and building software, the, the actual compiler for it. So that was kind of empowering. And I was very active in what what then were just the forums, news groups, I think GNU, and 
what what we those were the the slack channels of the day yeah and we would talk right we would talk about well how would you use this there was there were two different systems this was with the sun microsystems we had two different systems that were battling open look and motif is that what it was called two different styles of interface and all the, the pros and cons of each and i had to decide between them and i was also helping other people decide and we were both exploring and sharing code and trying to talk about how to do certain things and and actually writing little applications on the side that then you mm-hmm. would post as free software somewhere and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so it was it's yeah, ama- go ahead. it's it's amazing that you had you know like you were very, very deep into software engineering and, you know, like come from a very technical background. And I'm wondering, like, where was that moment of transition? Because now you're exceptionally well known for your work as a user experience researcher. So what was kind of like the inflection moment there where you, you know, like pivoted? You're, so you're saying words like pivot, breaking in, yeah. you know, th- that that moment where it changed, right? There To me, there was no change. I've always been doing this. Mm-hmm. So like the, the little application that I remember, one of them that I remember was um, we had a, a, a secretary up front of our <laughs> little group, right? And she would take phone calls because nobody had mobile phones. And then if you were out, you know, like grabbing lunch or something, she would leave a little pink slip on your desk that says like who called, the time they called, and what their phone number was, and whether you should call them back. And it was a little form, I had these little check boxes and lines on it and stuff. And I'm all like, forget this paper stuff. I've never been into paper. <laughs> For some reason, me and paper just don't get along. And if you have me anywhere near a printer, the printer will misbehave. <laughs> but I'm all like, okay, the heck with this paper. I'm going to do this in software. So I replicated that little form in software. And then I'm like, well, it doesn't just have to be this form. I can make it like specific to different kinds of calls or specific to like urgency or specific to the kind of uh, like the nature of the call kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I did a whole bunch of different interfaces for it and taught her how to use it. And I was hoping that she could start leaving those in our inboxes instead of our, our email, right? Instead of like paper on our desks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so to me, I was always connected to the people that I was trying to build something for. Uh, One of my following jobs, because I think right after that, I started working as a consultant. And to break in, uh, instead of being an employee, I was just going to be working for myself. I started breaking in to being, so the breaking in was from being an employee to being self-employed. And that took a lot more of my, a lot more of like change and attention to the the different ways of doing things uh, in terms of being a freelancer Mm -hmm. than it did with the idea of me continuing to work with the people that I'm trying to support. So one of the first projects I got was with Visa, the card, credit card company. And um, yeah. They had at the time a call center. If you lost your card, you could call Visa 911. And in that call center, which was on the East Coast, there were people who could speak just about every language around the globe. And it was very well managed to make sure, you know, proper number of people were available and all these different metrics that they were measuring. And they were using a computer system that 
was not a desktop system. It was just, um, you know, you use the keyboard to type to get around different pages and page up, page down and flip back and forth between screens, right? Mm -hmm. So it was all text on the screen, no mouse. And there, somewhere their boss got the idea that they wanted to switch over to a more windowed system. God knows why, because they were really fast with those screens. Mm -hmm. I went out there and I did all this work with them and I'm like, why are we changing? (laughs) This is actually pretty good. What the places were where they did need help was the the fact that like they had to get up and send faxes and the fax machine was at the other end of the room. And sometimes there were people waiting. And so they had to have their customer on hold. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was frustrating to the customer and frustrating to the rep themselves. Right. So what we should be doing is like somehow getting them access to the fax from their seats. I think eventually they, they did through having the windowed system, but that was kind of, you know, the kind of stuff that I was interested in. It's like, Mm -hmm. you know, why the system isn't, is supporting these certain things, but not those other things. And so why is our business initiative going to like something pretty when really what it should be doing is making it easier to get the facts sent out. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of, I I did that work in 93, I believe. Mm -hmm. So, and, uh, you know, so I've always been doing this. This I don't feel like I've transitioned at all. Mm-hmm. The transition was really just a figuring out how I work for myself and how to get clients. <laughs> we'll be back after a quick word from our sponsor. How many times do you think you touch your phone a day? Try 2,617. Seems like a lot, but DScout research shows that's just the median. Since everyone is already on their phone, DScout took qualitative research right to the people. Their pool of over 100,000 participants answer client questions on the largest digital diary platform around. You don't need to spend weeks setting up and recruiting for your research when you can use DScout to capture experience remotely. Learn how quickly you can launch your next study at dscout.com. I would love to talk a little bit more about that as well, because you spent, you know, relatively early in your career, 10 years as a consultant, and then you actually became the founder of Adaptive Path, which is pretty well known in the industry. And, you know, I would love to kind of hear what got you interested in going from an individual consultant freelancer to kind of this more, you know, consultancy firm um, type dynamic. That's a really, really good question. Um, It So along those lines between, you know, 93 and 2000, something, these, these, these things that we were doing started getting names Mm -hmm. and we started connecting with other people who were doing these similar things. And that connection was really, really thrilling. It was like, oh, wow, I'm not the only one who's thinking about these sorts of approaches. The, the, the connection that happened actually was on a chairlift at Sugar Bowl, the ski resort up in the Sierras. (laughs) And I was, you know, I was out there for a day of skiing. I can't remember. I might've actually, yeah, I moved myself up to Truckee for a year, which is one of the towns up there, just because I wanted to, I, I was working so hard with my clients that I felt like I wasn't having a real life. 
So I got myself a ski pass and I moved to Trekkie. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sitting on the ski lift. And, and and the weird thing was, is that I like quadrupled my client load while I was there. Oh my it gosh. didn't work. <laughs> but I did actually get out and ski a little bit. And um, one of the guys who was on, you know, you, you just get in line. I wasn't skiing with anybody. I just happened to be on the chair with some dude. And we start talking because you have a time to talk. And he's working with somebody who works at uh, Wired Magazine. Um, and he's like, oh my God, you would love Mike Kunyowski. I've got to connect you guys because uh-huh. he's, he's talking about sort of the same things you're telling me that you are interested in and working on. So, uh, Mike and I, Mike, Mike Kunyowski was one of the founding partners of Adaptive Path. Also, he is currently at Xerox Park and pretty well known for his work in helping people understand machine learning. Mm. Um, but but we got connected, started having, you know, we had some lunches and some dinners and we're like, we need to go, you know, do some work together. We can go into business together. At the same time, I met Christina Woodkey at this, and then I met Peter Merholtz. And it's kind of like all these people sort of doing the same thing. Um, Carola Falenz was also, although she, her last name might be Thomas now. She was also one of the people <laughs> that I that I met. And all of us are like, man, we should like do something together. We should like mm-hmm. be a thing and sort of offer these services sort of as a group uh, because we can definitely learn from each other. We were doing a lot of talking uh, about what we were doing, what we were thinking about, how we were solving problems, what we were encountering. And there really wasn't that much talk about resistance to interaction design. Nobody wanted to resist interaction design and we still hadn't quite defined user experience. And I think what was being defined at the time was user research. Um, So I dabbled in user research for a little bit just to see what that was. You know, doing some some uh, usability tests and stuff for a company called Smart Age. Anyway, so it was the dot com boom. At some point, I think Mike and I started working together, and then Peter wanted to work with Mike, and Peter started pulling together some others, and Mike said, "Well, Indy too." And I think Corolla, but then Corolla said, "No, wait, I've got this other opportunity." And so I went with Mike to meet Peter. And then I met Janice and Jesse and Jeff. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how we met. I remember sitting down at this conference table. I do not know where, but it was in San Francisco somewhere. We got a conference table in a room and I'm looking around like, holy hell, each person here has a laptop and a mobile phone. I'm with my tribe. <laughs> 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 so and that was, late 2000. So, and mobile phones were not screen-based things Mm -hmm. at the time. But it was like, oh, wow, you know, this excitement about other people. Um, We incorporated on 2001, the 2nd of March. Um, So it was a couple months later. We didn't incorporate, actually. I think we just did a, formed an LLC, but we got official about it and we started having weekly meeting, I think. Yeah. Actually we spent every Tuesday together Mm -hmm. and uh, it was fantastic because we didn't have an office. We were just sort of loosely affiliated, but we started working on stuff together. I had, like you said, been consulting for 10 years. So I'm the one who brought all the clients in at first so that we had some income and and I think Jeff and maybe some of the others really wanted to start doing the the conferences and stuff. Mm-hmm. 
so it was the idea of like, if we all work hard enough then maybe we'll get um, enough money to start or launch a conference kind of a thing. So, and I'm like, I don't know anything about conferences. Sure. <laughs> you guys take that on. I know how to consult. I can help you with this. So that was kind of how the connection happened. The Tuesday thing though, that was beautiful was we spent the entire day together at somebody's house mm-hmm. and the morning we would talk about, I can't remember how we divided it up, but there was always this talk about the section where we're going over client projects and the things we're running up against and eliciting help from others. But there was this other whole section where we were just talking about sort of the what's going on, what what we're learning, it, uh, what you know, what's being written about it, what you read about it. How are we going to run our company in terms of these opportunities that are coming up? So it was. It was just really, really fun. I loved being able to share ideas about doing the projects. That was kind of my half of it. But I loved sort of hearing all of this like, oh, wow, there's, you know, this direction that seems to be forming. There are more people who are starting to call this what we're calling it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it it just grew from there, really. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it my understanding is you spent about five years um, actively working with Adaptive Path. And mm-hmm. I, you know, first of all, it's just, it's so cool to hear stories like that, you know, because I think a lot of us are younger in our careers or even, you know, farther along, but it's just, it's amazing hearing kind of the beginning tale, you know, of people mm-hmm. who are so respected and, you know, a group like Adaptive Path that's so respected. Now it's really cool to be like, oh yeah, you guys just got together on Tuesdays at someone's yes, house. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, yep. that's awesome. <laughs> that that and that thing, like I said, you know, Jeff wanted to do the the conferences. I'm like, what? I don't know anything about that, but go ahead. You know, it's like I'll help you out with the stuff I know how to do, and then learn sort of what it means to form a community that way and kind of lead that way. I think a lot of the members were writing, and so I got encouraged to write. I never blogged before. Mm-hmm. I think Peter was actually the one who came up with that term. <laughs> Web log, right? (laughs) (laughs) So I was encouraged to write, you know, and sort of to stretch in that direction. So that was cool. Before I joined Adaptive Path, I had worked on a project with someone who was super wowed by my mental model diagrams. Mm -hmm. And he told me, you have to write a book about this. Actually, he told me, you have to write a book and what is it? Trademark this and then teach it. And it'll be your methodology and you'll build build an empire out of it. And I'm like, I am no empire builder. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I'll write the book though. So at the end of my five years at Adaptive Path, when, you know, their consulting was going super well, I'm all like, okay, you don't need me. I'm going to go write my book now. So that's sort of how I did that transition. And I think the the writing that they encouraged me to do, you know, as a group, that really helped me be able to do that. Yeah. So I'm glad that you brought up mental models. I would love to have you maybe just explain for people who are unfamiliar with the term or, you know, specifically your definition of it. Like when you say mental model, what what do you mean? Well, I try to always say mental model diagram just to help people understand that it, it is my definition of it. The definition is like anything that a person or a team pulls together in understanding of another person or another group or another system. 
The typical definition is a person's understanding of a system, Mm -hmm. an individual's understanding of a system or, you know, like the the system of roads around San Francisco, say. But but the the meaning that I pull from it is um, a group, a team holds this understanding together of another group of people or groups of people, which are your clients, Mm -hmm. your customers, the people that you're trying to support. Um, and I've evolved the uh, the vocabulary around it quite a bit. When that book came out, I was still using the word task, and task was extremely overloaded. I think Livia Labate was the one at some uh, UX book club somewhere. She's all like, "So, like, talk to me about tasks." And it was like, "Oh, at that point, I'm like, oh, you're right. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's such a good word." Mm-hmm. <laughs> So in the new book that I wrote, Practical Empathy, um, I use all new vocabulary and it's much easier and clearer to deal with. But mental model diagrams are a visual representation of our team's understanding of how the people we want to support are thinking their way toward purpose. It's not having anything to do with your organization. The mental model diagram is only about how a person thinks toward their purpose. Mm -hmm. When you align things underneath that visual diagram, you're aligning your capabilities as an organization to support those particular parts of that mental model diagram. And that's when it becomes something called an opportunity map, Mm -hmm. which is Christina Woodkey's word for it. And lots of people love that and are talking about it in terms of opportunity maps. So, um, because that's really what it's about. What it is, is helping your organization see where to go, see where I've got gaps, see where their opportunities are for maybe filling in those gaps or maybe strengthening something that I thought was strong, but it isn't, Mm -hmm. or opportunities like of a completely different nature. Like um, I was just talking with an insurance company and they were like, yeah, I got the mental model taught us that after your auto claim, you have an auto accident, maybe your car is totaled and your, your significant other is injured. Right. But after you close the claim, we think of it as being done but the person who experienced the accident is not done with it. They're still mm-hmm. reeling emotionally. They're still dealing with physical therapy from the trauma. They they have a new car payment that maybe they weren't financially ready for. Mm-hmm. And so now the organization can go like, well, hey, there is an opportunity. We can help support people beyond what we used to think of as the end of our job. So I think that's a really beautiful example of what a mental model diagram can help people or what what an opportunity map can help people with. The mental model diagram is just the top part of the opportunity map. And that mental model diagram is very carefully curated. The data is gathered in a very specific way so that you can use it that way. Um, Otherwise, uh, it gets too conflated with the organization's offerings and it becomes something like a journey map. And that does not show you the same kinds of things that an opportunity map can show you. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up because as I was, you know, kind of preparing for this conversation and just as I've been, you know, reading about mental model diagrams and, you know, just a number, I feel like there's a number of other methods that can, you know, kind of be conflated, right? Where you're just saying like a customer journey map. And I would love to have you specifically kind of say, the difference, right? So people have a really clear idea of, 
okay, here's when I should use a mental model and here's, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of what differentiates it from these other types of models. So first off, you don't do a mental model very often. They're very long lived. You use them often, Mm -hmm. but you don't have to maybe once a year or something. The mental model diagram represents a purpose, people's thinking as they're achieving a purpose. Whereas journey map has more to do with tasks and goals. So your goal might be in the, it, let's talk about insurance and that accident, right? Your purpose might be recover from the accident, mm-hmm. right? And that's what the mental model diagram is about. But your, your task might be, you know, gather all the information to fill out the insurance form goal might be to, you know, get a claim, like start a claim so that I can make up for my loss, right? See if mm-hmm. they'll pay me some money or give me some physical therapy uh, appointments or so, you know, something, right? Mm-hmm. See, see what's covered. So those are, those are very different. Those have to do with an organization where like the word user or the word member or customer or whatever word you use all of those words represent someone who has a relationship to an organization. With the mental model diagram, we're interested in people themselves having no relationship to your organization. And what their purpose is to recover from an accident has much more to do with other things than your organization. Your organization might be wrapped up in it, but it's really about their purpose. Um, So you'll hear things like, you know, I berate myself for being so stupid as to, you know, run that stop sign or figure out how I can force myself to change my habits so that this never happens again, or, you know, try to quell my anger at the other person because I want to reduce the tension of the situation. Mm-hmm. And I don't want him to throw a punch at me mm-hmm. <laughs> or something like that. So it's all these inner things thoughts. I mean, they may not be conscious thoughts, but they come out consciously in a listening session. Um, and the listening session is how we gather that data. The For anything that has to do with users or customers or anything solution-based, you might use ethnography in terms of an interview, which has sort of predetermined points that you want to explore, maybe even questions that you've written up in a protocol that's been approved. With a listening session, the only thing you go into it with is like, okay, you had an accident. How are you recovering? What's gone through your mind? What went through your mind yesterday? What went through your mind, you know, when this happened? What went, you know, what went through your mind in all these discrete points of time so that I can get what that little inner voice is talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it almost sounds like strategic versus tactical. Yeah, where it's like, you know, like you're looking for this higher purpose as opposed to maybe the goals or tasks that people are using to achieve that purpose. Yeah, 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 that could be Um, one thing that I'd like to say, too, about the purpose, um, which what you said reminded me of is that 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 purpose is something your great grandmother could have had. I mean, your great grandmother could have been in an accident, might not have been with a car. And she may not have had insurance, but she sure as hell had to recover from an accident. Mm-hmm. And how did she do it? And so I could go back in time and do a listening session with her and that data would still be valid today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that the whole concept of a listening session is really interesting, you know, to me personally, mm-hmm. especially because there's like some part of me that's immediately a little bit afraid because it's not like 
pre-planned enough or something right, like right, that. Right, right, yeah. You know, because it's very much just like you letting this person take you on a tour of their experience. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm curious as you're kind of describing mental models, I would love to hear more about what is a situation when I should use a mental model versus a customer journey map? And also, I'd love to hear more specifics on like listening sessions, how many you typically do for a project. I'm just kind of trying to build, I guess, my own mental model of how you make a mental <laughs> sure. model diagram. Yeah, I've got I've got a whole lot more on my website, too. So if yeah. people are interested, there's a ton there also in the book. But when would you turn to mental model diagram? When would you turn to gathering data in terms of a purpose with listening sessions? Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, maybe once a year, maybe once every five years. But the reasons why are that you have some organizational questions around your direction. Mm-hmm. The, the insurance company that I was just using as an example earlier had from on high been told, hey, we need to focus on the user. We need to be a user-centered organization. And this is a huge organization. It's coming down from on higher. And everybody's like, okay, how do we do this? How do we do this? And they're still using the old way, like, oh, okay, we're, we're going to do metrics on how many um, auto claims are closed in within 30 days or, or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And then we'll see how we're doing. And, and they're still looking at in terms of their system. So if you are an organization who wants to look at opportunities out from, get out from underneath the employee hat, get out from behind the rose colored glasses or the, you know, the, this is the insurance industry colored glasses, right? And like, see what other perspectives there are that might offer new approaches. That's when you want to do it. One of the things that I talk about is the idea of problem space versus solution space. And the solution space is all about when we generate ideas and we come up with different designs and we discuss those designs and we figure out how to implement them and we figure out development schedules and how to do this and how are we going to roll it out and how, then do we cycle back and let's do some evaluative studies. Maybe let's do some generative research. Mm-hmm. It's all about solving a problem. But problem-based research is about understanding the person problem-based research, so a mental model diagram is a product of problem-based research. Mm-hmm. Problem-based research is really all about going be outside of the way that you typically think of things. So that example earlier, the gal I was speaking to said that she had you know, been in the industry, started out as an adjuster, a claims adjuster. She said, I, I knew I, you know, hundreds of thousands of these things I've worked with on people, actual individuals. I knew just about every permutation of them. But when we did the listening sessions and made the mental model diagram, I realized that I was looking at it all completely through the system. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that idea of like, you know, when a claim is closed, it's not over for the customer. That was sort of like, well, duh. <laughs> I know that, but I never thought that, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So if your organization is looking for a way to get ahead of the competition or a way to pick back up some 
some customers that they're starting to lose, right? Or, you know, looking for all, all of those traditional things. This is a great way to get outside of that framework and really make a difference, really have some solid things you can grab onto and implement. Uh, like, you know, within a year, you can get them rolled out and new things will be out there in support of the customers. And then, you know, what follows from that is, I guess, more traditional marketing. But the idea of of using this to look beyond and to recognize that you are in a point where you want to look beyond is kind of difficult um, mm-hmm. to, to be aware of. Um, a lot of startups are at that point. They're like, oh, you know, sky's the limit. I could do anything. Let's figure it out. Let's get some some data on how people are thinking and sort of focus down, narrow down. Cause like, it's all about when you're first starting out, you want to narrow it down to something so that you can be super successful at something Mm -hmm. and then you can expand. Um, And this is a great tool for recognizing, you know, like exploring what the some things are and picking one Yeah, and really nailing it. Well, and I want to go back to listening sessions in a second, but I, I would love to hear a little bit more about what you just said, because Mm -hmm. As I'm listening to you describe this, it sounds really interesting, really exciting, like something I I would want to, you know, try out. But I feel unsure of like, how do I start? Like, how do I define the question? Right? Like, how do I get yeah, something narrow but, yeah. enough to start a listening session? Even? Yeah, it's all about purpose. It's all about sort of thinking about all of those things that you're interested in and asking yourself, okay, does this have to do with the organization, with the offering? Or does this have to do with the person's purpose? Mm -hmm. Just go through that thought experiment, throw a bunch of things into the pot. Most of them are going to be solution focused because that's just the way that we're trained. Um, We get all of our recognition from making up good ideas. (laughs) (laughs) So, So it's very different than... It's even different than most research as it's applied in the in the real world. Apparently, in academics, in the academic HCI side of things, this is not necessarily a difficulty. But in the real world, it is mm-hmm. because that's how we get rewarded. And so it is a different mindset. It's a good thought experiment to try just writing a bunch of them down and then think about each thing that you're curious about that if you had all the budget in the world, you would explore and then say, well, wait a minute, is this about the organization or the offerings or the system and like how well it works for someone or whether we can come up with something new that might attach to it. Or if you've turned your back on that and you're just looking at someone's purpose. So I get hired to do this all the time Mm -hmm. because somebody will want to do this. will somehow convince someone to get budget and then they'll say, okay, come in here and help us do this. I mentor people. I, I help teams. I guide teams through it. Or they'll just hire me direct But and, and turnkey kind of uh, research. But when I'm mentoring people, a lot of the time it's like, well, we want to figure out X, but they can't quite say X without saying their offering or their system. Mm-hmm. It's still very connected. It's like you have to pull the spaghetti strands apart. And so I help them figure that out. I'll mm-hmm. usually it, It'll, it'll take between a day and three months to figure it out. But uh, usually it, it comes in within a week and <laughs> and we have a direction to go. Yeah. How long does 
does it typically take you to do a full mental model? Like how many listening sessions are you doing? Yeah. So the number of listening sessions depends on the number of thinking styles or behavioral audience segments that you want to explore front. Uh, I'm, I'm like, can we take an example? Cause this is, it's like so esoteric when you speak about it in theory in general, let's take, uh, I, I kind of want to go away from the insurance example and I'll use the example of a company that is called Brigade. They were, I believe, spun out from causes. I could be wrong about that. I wanted to understand how they could support people who were active. How did they say it? Active, like at the grassroots level and at the community level in trying to make change happen. And when, like, we spent a couple of days talking about what should the focus be of this thing. One part of it is you have to figure out, well, who? And they're all like, well, you know, there's people who do it professionally, and we definitely don't want them because they have their own systems. They're already supported. We want to be able to support people who do it unprofessionally. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But not just anyone who's, like, just sort of getting into it. We want to support people who are doing unprofessionally, but who like have enough momentum behind them. They're really organizing something and they need tools to help them organize something. But it took a couple of days for us to get to that point to figure out, you know, the Goldilocks problem, who is it? Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, so once you know who, then you can start thinking about, well, are there different behavioral approaches or thinking styles within this who? Mm -hmm. So of the people who have who are doing it unprofessionally and have enough momentum that they need tools to help them organize at like an event or email mass emails or, you know, getting uh, marketing together or wh- whatever. Right. How are there different approaches? And if so, what are the approaches? So I think we came up with the idea of like someone who's thinking style is like, okay, this is this burning issue for me personally. It really, really touches me personally. It's the only thing I'm ever going to get involved in. Mm-hmm. Uh, versus the person who um, who's who's like I'm I'm always involved in causes and I'm going to do this over and over and over again, uh, so I have a sort of a different mindset or approach to it. So that's kind of the two different audience segments. Once you get that, the two different thinking styles, then you can say, okay, I need at least probably five or six people per audience segment to do listening sessions with, if you're conducting listening sessions in a very open way, um, you're going to, within those audience segments, you're going to start hearing the same sort of concepts coming up after about five or six people. Mm -hmm. Um, And new concepts will be fewer and farther between. So because we're all on limited budgets, let's go for five or six of each of those two and see what we get, what patterns we get out of Mm -hmm. that. Well, and something else that I found really interesting about your listening sessions is how much effort you put into recruiting for them, because Mm -hmm. I think that that's like something that needs to be called out. It's not just five or six people who, you know, know. match your criteria. It's five or six people that you actually did a screening phone call with Mm -hmm. and, you know, are confident that they can talk through their own like Mm -hmm. thinking process around it as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, the screening criteria is also a little difficult because we're looking for a thinking style, which is often hard to and enunciate in a survey mm-hmm. format. So the screen call is definitely always happens. Um, 
it's like a mini listening session in a way to see if I can understand this person's thinking style and see if I can understand whether this person will be able to speak to me about their inner thinking. So that's, I wouldn't do it without that. Um, There are clients who have done it without that. And what it leads to, I mean, it's not such a big failure. What it leads to is listening sessions that start off like with people who are reluctant to speak and you can't seem to establish trust. Sometimes you can establish trust or, or it starts off with people who are calling because they were that squeaky wheel and they're always complaining about the software or whatever. And, Mm -hmm. and so they want to spend the entire time complaining about the software. (laughs) So you're like, okay, maybe we can get them onto this other topic. Maybe we can't. Um, But, you know, if you can't, then the failure is, you know, the listening session ends early and you really don't have anything in there. Mm -hmm. Um, But when you're running a listening session, you're running for some, you're, you're looking, you're trying to establish rapport using your emotional empathy, establish trust and understanding so that that person will open up and tell you their deeper inner thinking. Uh, You can't just stick with preferences. You can't just stick with opinions. You can't even stick with explanations. Those aren't going to tell you the kind of things that you need for a mental model diagram. So what you need to do is get down into that inner thinking, kind of like what their reactions were and, and how that reaction guided their their decision Mm -hmm. and and what their guiding principles are that guided some of the things that they did. Mm -hmm. I feel like we could talk about mental models for another hour because I'm like, I have so many more questions, but I, maybe I'll stick with one more question um, before we wrap up, but I would love to, you know, just hear you say a little bit about the analysis process for a mental model. So like you've, let's say you've done all of these listening sessions and Mm -hmm. they've gone really well, then what happens? Right. Like, how do you get to the point where you have these like an opportunity map and all of these things? Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's two ways to go about it. One is the formal way uh, where you get pretty much 100 percent clarity on all the concepts that were talked about. And the other is the informal way when you're in a bit of a rush and it gives you about 30 percent of the concepts I've done. I've only done one experiment though. So that 30% is just from one experiment, (laughs) but sometimes 30% is just fine. Like if you're in a hurry, you just need 30%. Okay, fine. We're just doing a prototype of something to see if our boss will give us money for it. So Mm -hmm. done. That informal version is that after each listening session, you write down summaries, you write down summaries in a specific format that I use for the mental model diagram Summaries of the reasoning, summaries of the reactions, and summaries of the guiding principles. One summary for each re- reasoning, one summary, w- one summary for each of the reactions, one summary for each of the guiding principles. And then you can stick those on sticky notes or something and do affinity mapping uh, that way into towers and then into mental spaces. The formal way you actually get transcripts of your listening sessions and you comb through them and write summaries that way. So rather than just relying on your memory to write down the summaries, you are actually making sure that you grab all of them and you're actually making sure you're meshing them together because when somebody's speaking about their thinking during a particular event, they're going to bring it up in different ways and they might mention it again a little later yeah. And you need to gather those together. So they're all just one summary. Um, those summaries then go into a spreadsheet along with the quotes that 
created them. And then you do your affinity uh, mapping between those summaries. Again, I do them in spreadsheets uh, because these things can get really huge, Mm -hmm. uh, thousands of lines long. And, (laughs) and it's just really hard. You can't do them on sticky notes. It's just too hard to physically gather it all. And you also, with a sticky note, you lose the quote. Whereas if you keep the quote with it, you have all sorts of data about that person. And you also have, you know, like demographic data or location data or time of day data or whatever that you can then decorate the mental model diagram with. Uh, Also, you have a way to re-understand what they were saying really quickly. So if you've read the summary, but the summary wasn't well written, you can read the quote and re-understand it without Mm -hmm. having to go all the way back to the transcript. And these get built up into towers and then mental spaces. And that gets uh, within the spreadsheet and the spreadsheet gets sucked through a a script. I've got one, uh, several of them on the website and it spits out a diagram. And then you use that going forward as the top half of your opportunity map. That specific format that I use for the summaries, um, if you know that format, you could wing it. The format is in place because it makes things so much easier. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, It makes things so much easier to compare. It makes things so much easier to Mm re-remember, re-understand as you're working with it. It's just, it's, it's a facilitator to make things easier and go faster. Mm -hmm. And that the other thing that the format is, is that I start with verbs and the verbs achieve much quicker your ability to form cognitive empathy with the people that are represented in your mental model diagram. So as you're using that mental model diagram, uh, as you're you know trying to figure out how to brainstorm something, say, you've got all those people right there and it's all first person present tense with the verb first. And so you're in their mind right there, mm-hmm. as opposed to having to sort of like say, oh, well, you know, the research says that 40% of the, you know, females who have two ears <laughs> use only one earbud, you know, or whatever. And you're like, okay, what the hell does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> right. So you just, you've got it direct. It's right there. And that's the reason for the format, make it easier and make it, make it enable cognitive empathy formation. Well, Indy, do you have any advice for someone who is considering doing a mental model, like any kind of words of wisdom as they're going into that? Start small. (laughs) I mean it um, because it's a different way of thinking and it can be somewhat frustrating if you're trying to do it alone without a lot of assistance um, to shift your mind that way because you're shifting your mind over to the problem space and then you're going to shift it back to the solution space. And it's hard to do that the first time you do it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I tell people, start small, just do um, a five-person study, six-person study. Thanks for listening today. If you want to continue the conversation, join us in the Slack group for a Q&A with Indy, Tuesday, November 21st. If you aren't already a member of the Slack group, you can request an invite under the community tab on our website, mix-methods.org. Follow us on Medium and Twitter to stay up to date with the latest UX research trends. Special thanks to Denny Fuller, our audio engineer and composer, and Laura Levitt, the design mastermind behind this project. See you later. See you later.